This week on the Backtable Podcast. So what we've noticed is that the medical imaging has uh, these hidden signals that the artificial intelligence models are able to identify. And we've seen some of these examples, for example, in our work where we show that the model can just look at a test x-ray and tell you that this is from a black or white patient. And we've seen other people do similar work that is showing that you can just look at a mod as a, at a test x-ray and say, hey, this will be the healthcare cost you know, for this mm. patient. And so it's an interesting area uh, because it's called this opportunistic screening. Welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things endovascular and interventional. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Concerto Detachable Quill Systems are shaped around the variety of patients you treat. Explore real-world case studies and share your own with hashtag Concerto Patient on the Medtronic Peripheral Vascular Health Twitter channel at MDTVascular. One of the biggest challenges clinicians face is not related to devices or techniques. It's the workflow. For conditions like aortic emergency, PE, and stroke, outcomes are impacted because it takes too long for treatment decisions to be made and for patients to receive therapy. Viz AI leverages artificial intelligence to coordinate care and improve workflow and is trusted in over 1,000 hospitals across the U.S. and in Europe. The platform uses AI to detect disease, provide access to high-fidelity imaging and patient information, and allows you to communicate securely through the HIPAA-compliant communication tool conveniently on your phone, desktop, or within the radiology workstation. No more asking the ED to send you a grainy picture or making countless phone calls to activate your teams. Visit viz.ai to learn more. And now back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. I'm pleased to welcome our guest for this week, Dr. Judy Gachoya, interventional radiologist at Emory in Atlanta. Today, we will be discussing the top, uh, topic of race in AI. Judy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Judy, your research has found extremely high accuracy for deep learning models in recognizing a patient's self-described racial identity based on radiology images. Can you help me understand more about the models? Yeah, thanks for this question. So what we've noticed is that the medical imaging has uh, these hidden signals that the artificial intelligence models are able to identify. And we've seen some of these examples, for example, in our work where we show that the model can just look at a test x-ray and tell you that this is from a black or white patient. And we've seen other people do similar work that is showing that you can just look at a mod as a, at a test x-ray and say, hey, this will be the healthcare cost, you know, for this mm. patient. And so it's an interesting area uh, because it's called this opportunistic screening and has potential for public health. But I hope that throughout the podcast, we'll get a chance to unpack what this actually means. Absolutely. Um, okay, so uh, not to be a total statistical noob, but can you help me understand uh, how you figured out that these deep learning models could tell race based on chest x-rays and other um, other imaging? Yeah. So what happened was that we were looking at a problem where we saw that there's uh, bias, uh, there's underdiagnosis uh, for, you know, in chest x-ray, we usually have these 14 labels. They're very well, you know, a lot of debate has gone around them, but that's what every chest x-ray data set has. 
you know, and where we okay. The, the fourteen labels are those like DICOM labels that every chest X-ray has. No, actually, they are just pathology labels. You know, like pneumothorax, okay. atelectasis, pneumonia. So you'll find that sometimes you'll have atelectasis and pneumonia, and people will be like, "Well, can you really tell the difference when you're just yeah, describing right, features?" Right. So, like, is it a diagnosis or just a finding? So that's a big debate. Okay. Uh, but yeah. some previous work before ours had shown that for seven of these 14 conditions, the models don't perform well for black patients. So when we started I off, see. we were just saying, hey, maybe we show you diverse data sets that we're going to take away all this bias, you know, but it turned out that okay. it wasn't. And so we ended up coming in to, to figure out the why. And that's how we said, oh, wow, these models learn some signal that correlates to the risk. And we thought that it was a mistake. And so ended up Got doing it. a lot, a lot of um, experiments just to try and figure out, is this, you know, is this a fake out? And it could maybe end up being something like that. We haven't figured out why, but sure. uh, we, we started looking at the models and uh, what they were predicting. So when you, when you ask about statistical you know, like what, like what, by what magnitude we have, yeah, yeah we have this, um, you know, if you look at maybe the AUC uh, values for the models, which is very common to evaluate classification models, we see that it's around 96% for test x-rays. So for every 100 test x-rays, 96 would be correctly identified. 96 will correctly identify the race. Okay. You mentioned the kind of the confounding factors that you tried to correct for to remove possible bias from the algorithm or try to find the source of bias. Um, could you tell me more about what you tried to correct for? So initially we started on test x-rays and we thought, wow, maybe this is just a finding on test x-rays. But it turns out that so we started by bringing other modalities, breast uh, mammograms. Uh, we also brought the CT chest and uh, we had some cervical spine uh, radiographs. And it turns out that the performance was good. Now, it wasn't as good as the 96 in 100, you know, but it was in above mm -hmm. the 80s. And then the second thing we said, well, maybe these models are, maybe the black patients in our population are pretty sick, you know. And so these models are just looking at the disease and confounding on that. And so uh, what we did was look at normal x-rays only, you know, something without disease. Do we find the same finding? And it, it still persisted. Okay. And then we looked at BMI, uh, age, uh, gender. And also uh, sort of like some of the disease distribution. So, for example, you know, breast density changes with race. Uh, sure. There's also yeah. bone density. And so we ended up um, trying all those as explanations and also uh, eliminating them from the images to see if the performance would be different. And uh, the performance dropped for most of those things, but it wasn't. Uh -huh random because you have six radiologists on our team and our performance was around 50 to 55 percent which would be like random i see yeah okay so just for some uh contrast how good are radiologists at predicting race based on looking at chest normal chest x-rays or, or normal imaging yeah you know this is not a task when we read when we interpret studies that we think about you know um, yeah. the, uh -huh. if you think about bias from a radiology perspective it's usually that, you know, at least in my training, uh, you know, people would say, oh, these are uh, like bullets, call them granulomas. Like if you found someone with a lot sure, of bullets, sure. you know, they can sort of almost guess or at least try and guess, yeah. you know, where they come from. Or when you have nipple rings, you know, they can try and okay. try figure out your, you know, sexual orientation or you'd see the changes in that. Most of us don't look at the image and say, oh, I think this is from a black patient. And the history even is, it right. doesn't have that information. So we found we were very bad. We were around 50 to 55. Okay. And this was just like a small sample because, I mean, it was a surprising sure. fact, yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess you've looked at a bunch of different confounding factors to try and correct. So what's your kind of like your best guess as to how the algorithm learns to predict race? Like, what do you think is going on? So I can tell you what we've worked on that we know that it's not. One, we thought it's maybe how X-rays interact with black, you know, dark colored skin like melanin. And since we still saw the same performance for MRIs, then it's not really an X-ray finding, you know? And then Mm, the second thing is when we've, we've done work where we segmented the lungs, we segmented, you know, the soft tissues and the metastinum and tried to use those as, uh, as the prediction. And what we find is almost maybe, maybe around f- not 55 like humans, but we see a drop in the 70s. But what that tells me is that the signal is contained in both the lungs and the soft, you know, the soft tissues. I see. Uh, the problem uh, here is that the, bla- the AI models are black box in nature. So they, it's very difficult to audit them, even, even on just normal predictions. You just look at them and I say, see. okay, this is accurate or not. But it's very, very difficult to audit and figure out why did this model that required millions of parameters come to this conclusion? So that makes our work a little difficult. So we know that it's not the melanin. We know that it's not the, we know that it's definitely not, you know, localized one piece of the body. And what mm-hmm. our, the current hypothesis we've been working on is that maybe it's something about the contours and bones, but mm. it turns out that you need a lot of physics phantom images to be able to explore that further. So I did, I did read um, as part of the article, you said that the AI models would work on images that had so much information removed that a human reading it could not even be able to tell that it was an x-ray. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that is just wild to me. T- yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Say, you know, if you have TikTok or Instagram, you usually put a filter above your image to change it, right? So we did something similar uh-huh. where we applied low pass and high pass filters. So this it's barely like a gray image, you know, <laughs> that you're looking at. Yeah. If I didn't tell you that mm-hmm. this was a chest X-ray, you really wouldn't know. And so, uh, but we still see those model. The models can tell you, oh, this came from a black patient, like you know, 89% of the time, you know, that's still very wow. surprising because yeah. the difference with that yeah. is if let's say you're auditing a dermatology application and the dermatology application, you tell me, you know, it doesn't work well for these 10 patients and you show me the 10 patients and I tell you, oh, look, your model is just failing on all dark colored skin, you know, but in this mm. case, first of all, we are terrible at telling what the race of the patient is from the imaging. Now you're bringing a grayscale image. It's like, that's like a double, you know, a double uh, mystery, you know, that you can never be able to figure it out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and I um, I just want to touch on the point that this was generalizable across multiple different data sets in the United States. So it wasn't localized to one region, right? Yeah. And we did even subsequently, not in the paper, we've had people reach out to test our model. You know, so we had other institutions even test and that data is not included in the paper and it was still the same performance. Without wow. okay. uh, So one thing to notice with this is that when you transfer an algorithm from one institution to another one, you have to... Uh-huh like fine tune, like make it learn the local distribution of the data. And in this case, we did not have to do that. You just send the model and be like, oh, voila, you <laughs> still have good uh, performance. Wow. Yeah, that's it's very interesting. Um, okay. Well, I, I think I understand the work a little bit better, uh, but now let's get into what are some of the implications of this research? 
Um, I think the first most important thing is it's it's amazing to think that racial signal can be embedded in something that is not obviously visualized. And uh, this also brought up a lot of debate, you know, is race a social and, you know, a social and legal construct versus, you know, a genetic uh, phenomenon, especially mm. when you can find your, you know, the same finding across uh, multiple imaging modalities, right? So you're finding mm -hmm. it on the wrist, you're finding it on the chest X-ray, you know. So is it just something that is there something that is you know related to genomics and ancestry that still makes sure you know says that we are different? And you know that there has been a lot of debate about you know like sure. the genetic differences versus the legal and social construct. And so I do want to clarify that for us, we defined at the self-reported race as how you see yourself and how others see you, mm -hmm. and. That is in the social and legal uh, construct. And so I think, so that's one, that it's surprising that this, these models can see something that you're not even training them for, you know? And the second thing is we have actually two examples of models that are, being, that are being developed that work better for Black patients. One of these is a knee osteoarthritis uh, model. And what it does mm -hmm. is that it performs better than the Ken Kelgan Lawrence Now, Some people may not really read MSK, so you may not know that this scale yeah. <laughs> G score is used for, you know, determining the severity of the osteoarthritis. And this group, what they did is that they looked at the KLG score. And so could you develop an algorithmic model that listened to the patient pain score and show if that's better for mitigating disparities and also improving the people who become eligible for knee surgeries? and in your in turn, that would mean that they get coverage, and they show that the KL, you know, the algorithmic score is much better than the KLG score. Now, oh, if you okay. come back and type back to our work, and where we tell you that, wait, this model can really tell you that this is a black patient or an Asian patient or a white patient. Mm -hmm. So you you mm -hmm. ask yourself, is this good performance because the model learns that the pathologies for black patients are A, B, C, D, or is it a better yeah. model because it just learned, oh, this is a black patient, you know? And so you have sure. to figure out, is that a bad thing or a good thing? But Absolutely. also remember the society is changing, right? We never had any, anyone in our population, at least in our EMR, we don't record them as mixed races. So when you encounter these mixed races, what will be, how will your model perform if it's just, you know, learning just the race of the patient? So that's sort of like yeah. the background yeah. of why this type of work matters. So it's not necessarily because when people hear you're working in bias or, you know, these disparities, we are not going to minimize that there's a lot of systemic racism, but, you know, and we know that there's differences in what patients uh, acquire in terms of the type of imaging, but we want to move away from victimizing or saying this is necessarily a bad thing to explaining sure. the question that you asked, like, why does this matter? And it's for us to be able to build and audit better AI models. Oh, wow. Yeah, no. Um, and I think it's it speaks to the uh, value of just saying that maybe a race agnostic model isn't isn't necessarily accurate. So what you think is race agnostic isn't necessarily race agnostic. And I think that's something that probably a lot of a lot of um, people who are involved in these in this modeling community outside of the race and bias spectrum would like to say that their 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 uh, software is race agnostic, but it truly isn't. And one other thing I just want to follow up with your comment is that just because you didn't include black, you know, the race label doesn't mean that your model is uh -huh. race agnostic, right? So we saw that with the Apple sure. credit cards, right? Uh, approving. Oh, wait, no. Tell me, tell me about that. I don't know about that. Yeah. I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm not a Apple big, I'm not a big uh, news reader. So yeah, tell me. Yeah. So when <laughs> Apple introduced their credit card and they were pre-approving uh -huh. people, 
if you're married, yeah. they'll give. So let's say you make more money than your partner, and uh, but that your partner would get a bigger sort of like uh, limit on their credit card. You know, despite okay. you having a better score and better more income, oh, and you know what they say basically was. Hey, we didn't put any gender information in the cards, mm. but this data mm -hmm. carry that signal. And the AI models are built to detect these signals, which is how we end up Gosh. in this conundrum. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. I'm learning so much. Thank you. Okay. So can you think of any way that this can really affect us in the IR field? So, uh, you know, most people, every time I would say, uh, you know, over the years, people would say, wow, AI is going to replace retail. I don't think, it's, you know, <laughs> clearly it's been many years and that's not happening. Uh, but I would say that's why I chose interventional radiology, you know, so that, <laughs> because, yeah. so, uh, so not necessarily, honestly, for, from our work, is, except when you think about the oncology line, right? So we're seeing a lot of work oh, on yeah. precision medicine yeah. that's matching imaging uh -huh. and pathologies, right? So we're seeing, hey, could you tell me who's a better patient to treat, right? So we know that a lot of IRs work in the IO space. And uh, if you don't know that there's quite a lot of this type of models being used to think about treatment response, to even try patients to determine what they should get. And, and so mm -hmm. that's, I think, going to be more of like an indirect way that, you know, we may get a referral, but we really don't know why the criteria came, but we don't see quite a widespread use, but there's a big, big momentum, lots of IP around actually this uh, phenomenon. And then the, in terms of IR, I think the most thing that's going to affect us directly is the use of robotics for our work. Remember, those are also AI driven, you know, and so it's going, we're going to see a lot of task shifting or ability, you know, like I dislike browsing lang nodding, so it's the robot can help what? me do it. Really? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Especially the sub millimeter fiducial marker placement. It, it just doesn't spark joy. <laughs> God bless you for still doing those. Oh my. <laughs> so I think we'll um, see more yeah. of those uh, robotics uh, come come for. And then the other area, this is not necessarily AI driven. And, you know, we... We don't see this sort of predictive algorithms a lot, but we see a lot of this coming into IR is this image fusion, right? So, you know, let's say, and we're seeing some of these tools being developed, which is, for example, like the virtual angiograms. Or, so maybe if I'm just okay. planning my, my study for tomorrow and you have a tough PAE. No one likes yeah. to do PAEs, but, you know, <laughs> you know if, if you're planning this, you could, if you have a good pre-procedural, you know, MRI or CT, sure. could you start to mark like, oh, if my catheter is here, how will the yeah. enhancement look, right? So then you can imagine when you're in the room, you know exactly where you're going and you know, oh, maybe Absolutely. I should be angling this angle at, you know, you know, 30 degrees LA or, you know, 45 degrees RAO to get into this difficult vessel. So we see... Uh, quite some work being done. I don't know that it's ready for prime time. At least the the the, the products I've have evaluated. But the big thought is to try and move us to sort of like an assistive tool. But I think that's going to be amazing for us. You know. Oh gosh, yeah. I think it, you know that sounds like it would really help with procedure times and patient comfort, um, and accuracy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how that's kind of how the the best case scenario is, right? That AI helps us with our work, doesn't take over yeah. our jobs, which. I don't think it's going to take over, yeah. No, I, yeah, mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah. You see quite a lot of this in neurospace, right? In neuro, okay, right? Yeah. With the uh -huh. uh, IR, 
interventions for stroke, right? So they, it's quite sure. a, a driven, uh, uh, increasingly an AI-driven workflow about activating the stroke team, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that the technology has changed. You shouldn't deny that. But uh, I think it's definitely going to change how we work. But, you know, most of us are not involved in this development. So, for example, if you want to do something on fluoroscopy, we never store the fluoroscopies, right? Unless you're doing a DSA or you do a fluorosay. You know, and that type of information where you could go back and say, okay, I'll use this as my data is very difficult to label. So that's how we are a little bit in a, we don't see much activity being done there. Now, there is a cardiology suit uh, application. What they've done is that they're dynamically understanding what face you are, let's say, and cardiology may be a little bit more straightforward because you have very specific vessels that you're, you know, cannulating. And it's going, when you do your run, it's going to decide, okay, this is, LED, this is the amount of stenosis. And what it does, it starts dictating your report while you're doing the procedure. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, so then, you know, yeah. yeah, but can you imagine something like that for IR? One day you're exchanging the first <laughs> tube, the next hour you're doing a tips, the next hour you're doing a biopsy. I mean, we are all over there. <laughs> that's, that's what makes it complex because AI tends to be more narrow focus, narrow use case, more than general uh, tasks. But I know that Absolutely. I would enjoy something that dictated my reports. And they just had to Don't sign. you have fellows? I'm, I'm just messing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You uh, touched on this a little earlier um, before our break, but you mentioned kind of marketing this, the results of this to the general population so they understand your research. Tell me a little bit more about what you've learned from that. So this is a skill that everyone has. If you're doing research or, I mean, whether you're also just speaking to your hospitalist or whoever you're speaking to, communication is just so key. And one thing is to make the message clear and also to make the message uh, simple. You know, this art of scientific communication, Mm -hmm. right? And because the doctors on the team quickly understood why this matters, but the computer scientists, and we had a lot of them on our team, they didn't understand it. They just said, you show me one mm. case, I'm going to build a mathematical model and it's going to solve your problem. And we all know that bias cannot be one solution, you know, and, sure. and especially because, you know, just because you include patients does not necessarily mean that you're going to eliminate bias. So representation is not adequate in just itself, you know, and I give this example in the real world where you could be very, you know, friendly to a uh, gay you know, someone who identifies as, um, a, you know, gay. and But on the other hand, you could be very, you know, disadvantageous to the same gay black woman or something like that, you know, or lesbian black woman. So you just because you include them, they may have many facets that they identify with. And we see this in terms of mm-hmm. the data sets that we build. Uh, I give that example because it was my experience in Portland, you know, very, very... Okay a great place to be queer, but a yeah. terrible place to be a black person, you know? And so, but if, when we think about that, you know, generally you'd be like, oh, that's the most diverse place that you could be in, you know? <laughs> and so um, if you think about some of the data sets we build, just because you include the patients, if, if you select them poorly, then you'll include the patients who are not representative of everyone. And so this is a big challenge of data set building. And we just have we don't even know how to measure it. People are just starting to develop techniques of how to do that. And I think it's um, like, so how do you communicate something like that to developers or people who just want, give me my data, I'm going to build my yeah. model and move on, you know? So uh, it, it's just, it's almost like a negotiation. So it made me think to make it simple, make your work reproducible. So release what you can 
uh, so that other people can repeat the experiments and give you validity. And something that's not used in medicine is, uh, not in medicine, because there's actually something that's come up like it's frowned upon in medicine is if you can, you can release your work as a preprint. And what this means I is see. you release your work before it's peer reviewed. And other people oh, I think can that's what it. you did with this paper, right? Exactly. It came out like last fall, I yeah, think, and then it was peer reviewed, and then came out again later. Yeah, yeah because that how did you get the idea? Yeah, how did you get the idea? Because to it's do very that? common in computer science. There, are some of the okay. biggest papers have never been peer reviewed, which is a never. Oh, okay. It's a little unimaginable to think about in medicine, but but this allows people to give you feedback, and you can re, you know improve your paper. Then the other soft skills are you know. Uh, luckily for us, the media picked it up, but, you know, if you have a media office in your in your institution, you should use it. Mm -hmm. You know, we never use mm -hmm. press releases when we've done like an amazing case in IR. You know, you still don't <laughs> share it out. Or the second thing is you also don't, for example, you sometimes we you, you can use your social media a lot. Uh, sure. You know, so yeah. increasingly this is something I've seen people not do not necessarily aim for the top tier journal. They just look for a good journal that's going to peer review your work and then use yeah. the social media strategy to get it out there. So there's quite a lot that's of like really soft skills yeah. around yeah. research yeah. Uh, that I didn't understand uh, and also how to package your work and make it readable uh -huh. else your message gets lost. So this was discussed on Reddit. There's a very active Reddit <laughs> comment. There's a Twitter tag. I mean, it was everywhere. So, so, I mean, I've enjoyed sort of, I mean, some, some comments are offensive, but I've enjoyed sort of getting the citizen feedback on it. That's yeah, no, I mean, isn't it amazing? Just I mean, you and I are both about the same year out of fellowship, right? But it's amazing all the stuff that I'm learning now as an attending that I never thought would have been important when I was in training at all. Yeah. And and yeah, and the sources too, right? The the sources of where we get our information is almost completely different than it Absolutely. was even five five years ago. Yeah. So just just a really exciting field to be in, really exciting time to be in IR. Sounds like a really exciting time to be a researcher too. Yeah, I mean, but but it's this, I call it this IRness, and I, I reflect this on the end of my training at the Delta Institute, you know, because I, I feel that that was also the turn of an era, you know, because mm. uh, when I came to be an attending at Emory, I, I mean, so I'm saying that it also sort of this, lifelong learning or on-the-job learning mm -hmm. reminds me mm -hmm. of sort of my feeling at the end of my fellowship at the Delta Institute, which is that, you know, we, by the time I had never used some of these like advanced devices because yeah. we just didn't have them, you know, and we would uh -huh. steam catheters and, we, you know, there's just sort of like <laughs> this, uh, you know, that this was not unusual to come up in the morning and just Look at the, you know, the, you only had like two catheters on the table, actually one and right, 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 you know, right. a Benson wire. And so, yeah. <laughs> but to come in and, and you have like a rock catheter to get into the uterine arteries, you're like, what? You know, and, and what and is so, this? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, what I would say is that this, it's this IRNS, and I hope that, uh, that, you know, people describe it in different ways. But when you're in a problem, you're always thinking and thinking of how to get, to get it better. There are many products, I'm not mm -hmm. going to say them here, that, I feel like they died because they moved away from IR. You know, if they had stayed mm. with IR, you mm -hmm. would not be putting mm -hmm. a big shit every time if it causes you bleeding problems and you're closing <laughs> out because you'd have figured out how to make it better. So this innovation and thinking always about this problem-based thinking and this openness to learn new things as you move forward, it's not, it's a balance between the arrogance of I can do everything, but 
you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm also in an institution where, you know, some of the people I work with are always thinking, you know, like this, you know, and absolutely. I, yeah. It, it's super rewarding. And, and, um, you know, I don't think it's something out of our breeders, you know, as I as. Well, awesome. I feel like we've had a really comprehensive conversation about this. I guess one question for you is what kind of future directions of research are you looking at in regards to to your findings? Yeah, so we're trying to do uh, the harnessing. There's two things. One is figuring out could you get better explanatory tools around this problem? And the, the explanations are also very debated. Like, do you really need explanations? And the reason for that is if you think about MRI or some of the equipment we use, we, we, yeah, we know when they don't work well, but we don't necessarily know that, you know, we don't necessarily know like the intricacies of, let's say, how, you know, a specific type of modalities develop. And so sure. people have debated what's the balance that's acceptable for AI. Do you need explanations or you just really need to know when it works and it, when it fails? And those can be very different things. And so one of our things is to figure out can we quantify this signal so that we can penalize the model and see how does it perform when we remove that signal? So we've done some work uh, that's called adversarial debiasing, where we remove that okay. signal and we see, well, do we still have good performance for the model? And this just helps us to figure out when the models fail. And so we're doing quite a lot of work on that. The second uh, area is expanding this concept. I, I started by saying, you know, yeah, we found out race, but we're starting to see all these other models and it's this hidden signals. And I mentioned something about opportunistic screening. So we see, for example, patients who may come to the ER and we know that CT is becoming increasingly the mainstay of screening for chest pain. And, you know, a lot of AI is being applied to such a problem. But not everyone with chest pain, you know, will come in with, you know, get a, seat, a gated CT, you know, chest. And so they may get an uncon CT because maybe they're coughing and someone just wants to look at their lungs. Or you're in contrast shortage and you, you just got a CT chest without contrast. And so this opportunistic screening takes these images that are done for something else and starts to look, can you start to develop cardiac risk marker, mar, you know, markers for population? Can you start to look at the fatty liver just because you're cutting the top of the liver on a CT chest and start to yeah. figure out the cardiometabolic risk for the patient. So that's, I think, really interesting work. And then uh, maybe one of the other projects we're looking at is, could you compound all these images and give you a sense of the social determinants of health for a patient? You know, because maybe, yeah, I live in a area where there's a lot of pollution so maybe there's some subtle changes in the chest these are all hypothetical uh, probably sure. we'll know at the end of the year and i walk 10 miles to work so my knees show a lot of wear and tear so could you start yeah. to get a different profile for the patient that helps you uh, figure out what their outcome will be i love that Just personalized medicine right that's the goal kind of <laughs> okay uh, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about in this podcast anything we missed no, <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you are doing really important research. I'm, I'm so glad there's people like you that's interested in this because I love learning from you. Um, and uh, I'm so glad we finally got to talk because <laughs> I Absolutely. feel like we have a lot in common. Yeah. Um, Julie, yeah, no, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much for, yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, I listened to the ones, you know, especially on the road to IR program. And <laughs> so, oh, I, yeah. 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 No, it's a, it's a great platform. I'm lucky to be involved in it. Okay, well, thank you so much, Judy, for being on the show today. Take care. Thank you. Bye. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.